Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Our theme uh, for this year's Advent and Christmas service has to do with Jesus, who even as a babe, and you have to catch that, even as a babe, is our sustainer and our creator. Somehow, uh, as Mary lifted the child, somehow swimming in that child's being was the sustaining of the entire cosmos. In him, we live and we move and we have our being. This is the mystery that we're celebrating this, this particular Advent. And this particular year has been a year where together we have needed the sustenance of God, uh, the sustaining power. Now, the Nicene Creed, as well as the first chapter of the Gospel of John, declares, through him, through him, all things were made. That's Jesus. That's even the baby Jesus. And this morning I want to touch on a major theme of Christmas that, that we declare a lot. We have a lot to say about it. Even secularly we have a lot to say it about it. Um, we talk, about, talk it up in our services and we talk it up in our song. But it's a theme that we rarely probe biblically. And I'm speaking of the kingship of Jesus. Israel expected a Messiah who would be king. And they received a Messiah who was king, but certainly not the kind of king that they anticipated or that they expected. And I want to suggest that the manner of Jesus becoming one of us, his birth, has a lot to tell us about what he expects of us who call him our king. He is also our God, so I entitled this message, Little Big King. Uh, tackling Jesus' kingship is kind of a, it's a fussy thing. In order to do what I believe God wants me to do here this morning, I was kind of bargaining with the Lord. I was thinking, is this really the way you want me to go, Lord? And a couple things happened this week where I really feel like I need to take a, a bit of an unorthodox approach toward Christmas. I'm going to have to put on my like teaching hat, and you're going to have to track with me in this particular message. It's a big picture message. So I want to read two scriptures, both of which describe the nativity of Jesus. And one is a scripture we use at Christmas often. Uh, it's enshrined in Handel's Messiah, uh, Isaiah 9, 6. But there's also another scripture we're going to deal with, which we rarely use for Christmas. It's from the book of Revelation. But it is a description of the nativity. I'm reading from Isaiah chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. I, I'm sorry, I said Isaiah 9, 6. It's Isaiah 4, 6. 4, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called. This is an identifier. Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting, I love the words, Father, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, or the Prince who always begets peace, of the increase of his government and, and of his peace, there will be no end. 
So I want to point out from these verses that power and government and authority are central to what Isaiah is prophesying. And it was what Israel was expecting for the coming of Messiah. It was what they were waiting for. But when Jesus was born Messiah, a child in a manger in some backwater area of, of, of the hills of Judea, the hill country of Judea, this kind of Messiah was not what the religious system had bargained for. Uh, they, foresaw politic they foresaw political power, civil authority, governmental muscle. Uh, they would cast off the yoke of whatever oppressors were in Israel at the time, whether Greek or Roman or others over the course of time. So they were expecting someone to address all that, uh, all of the, the, the worldly problems immediately in a worldly way. But here's a fascinating thought. And I, this always like kind of amazes me. The Magi or the kings, the wise men, in trying to discover from the scriptures the exact birthplace of the Jewish Messiah, they apprise not only King Herod, uh, but the scribes of Jerusalem. Now, the scribes existed to point out where, how, what, what Messiah was going to look like and where he was going to come from. And, and so they point out that, that Messiah has been born. And they want to honor him. And the scribes then go to the scriptures and tell the Magi exactly where to look for the king. Exactly where to look for Messiah. But then, watch this, the entire faith system does absolutely nothing about it. I mean, they ignore it. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit their paradigm of kingship. The only person who reacts is the homicidal uh, uh, maniac, Herod. So all, now watch, this follows through in Jesus' life because all of those years later, Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem as Messiah and they greet him on Palm Sunday as the Messiah that looks a little bit like what they expected. They lay the palms before him and they cry, Hosanna, uh, prepare you the way of the Lord. And two weeks later, they kill him. Two weeks later, they kill him. What God was doing was not what they had hoped for. They were disappointed. One could say that the cries of the people changed from Hosanna in two weeks to crucify him on the basis of a collective tantrum over the fact that he wasn't the kind of king that they had envisioned nor had they bargained for. Shakespeare calls this the fickleness of the madding crowd. Nevertheless, Isaiah prophesies that in the coming of this little king, authority and government will not be done away with. Authority and government will increase forever. But it's a new kind of power, and it's a new kind of authority, and a new kind of government that comes with this little king. So, my first point is, Christmas is not to celebrate the birth of what was a potential king. There are even some books out there that, that seem to claim that Jesus became king on the cross, king in the resurrection. That's not it. It was the birth of the king and the only king. Jesus did not become king on the cross. He is not king as the result of his resurrection. He was king in his conception and his birth at a manger. So what does the birth of the king have to tell us about the nature of the nature of, of this kingdom, the, this power, this authority, the kind of government that Isaiah prophesied. It, it's, it's, uh, here's a curious fact. Let's just track with me on this. 
all of the historical counts of the birth of Jesus ostensibly occur in the Gospels of Luke and the Gospel of uh, Luke and Matthew. And I get why Mark doesn't do it. Mark begins his Gospel with the public ministry of Jesus. Uh, however, it's often claimed that there is no overt Christmas story ever written by John. And I don't buy that at all. It's really counterintuitive to, to even buy that. What really makes this interesting is that John was the one who had access to Mary, to her story, and her feelings, the thoughts uh, regarding the Messiah's birth, and he had it in a way that no one else had. More than that, John had access to other Gospels. He, 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 the Gospels of Matthew and Luke had been written before John wrote his Gospel. And he doesn't change. He doesn't change their stories, their nativity stories at all, but he does have a different perspective. I would say uh, a more mystical, a more supernatural perspective. And I believe that his perspective is uniquely pertinent to what God is doing on the earth right now. John was the last of the apostles of the Lamb uh, alive. Died in about 100 AD. Now, from his cross, Jesus gave to John the responsibility of caring for Mary and then asked Mary to mother the young disciple. And all the accounts of the early church, as well as uh, the church fathers, uh, place Mary with John at Ephesus, where they ultimately both went to be with the Lord. John uh, died there, and Mary, uh, Mary, at least according to the traditions, was translated into heaven. The classical church is called an assumption. It's not unbiblical. It was like Enoch. Enoch I'm sorry, Enoch. By the way, I would, wouldn't mind going that way myself. But that's beside the point. From So I believe that we do have this fascinating glimpse of John's view of the nativity in two places in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, which I'll be covering next week. But can I point out that the rule and the government and authority are central to these scriptures and they're revealed in the book of Revelation as well. And I want to deal with the book of Revelation today, which is an odd place to go at Christmas time, Revelation chapter 12, and then next week we'll open up with the Gospel of John. So, now you're going to have to track with me. My teaching hat is on because we're dealing with apocalyptic literature. I always say this, apocalyptic literature doesn't mean what it says necessarily, but it does mean what it means. This is the Bible. So let's read together from Revelation chapter 12, and I want to do this running commentary, but I want you to, to be tracking with me. And look at the picture of the nativity of Jesus here from the perspective of John. Here's Christmas from the perspective of heaven. Chapter 12, verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This depiction is in all kinds of medieval art you see, in, 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 in the, especially in the, in the cathedrals in Europe. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So who is this woman? Is she Mary, which, which seems rather obvious, but the crown with the 12 stars seems to say that she is royal Israel. You know, 12 stars, 12 tribes, 12 patriarchs, 12 elders before the throne. And in verse 17, we actually discover she is the church as well. She has more children in that verse who testify to Jesus. So who is she really? Well, she's all three. 
Israel historically brings forth Messiah to a lost world, and she is Mary who personally brings forth Messiah to a lost world, and she is the church who missionally brings forth Jesus the Christ to a lost world. She is clothed with divine light, the sun, and she moves on reflected light, the moon. Jonathan Edwards identifies the two lights as the logos, the divine light, and the rhema, the spoken word, the prophetic word, as the reflected light. Verse three, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, John says, take a look at this. You've got a woman who's crying out in agony, ready to give birth, and watch this. Here's another sign appearing in heaven. Behold, John says, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. The horns and the diadems are symbol, symbols of an opposing power and authority in government. And this reptile is claiming some kind of sovereignty here, right? The seven, he seven heads simply mean he's hard to kill, right? You, kill, you knock off one head, you still have six to deal with. Number four, uh, chapter, excuse me, verse four. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. So we have this obvious description of Satan and one-third of the angels who had fallen. In, in verse 9 of chapter 12, John identifies the dragon as Satan. And the dragon stood, watch the positioning here. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she bore her child, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So the image is that, that this dragon is standing between her legs as she's positioned for birth. Uh, this, it's, it's crazy. And of course, this, this literally happens when the homicidal maniac Herod seeks to slaughter the Son of God. And now here's an interesting thing. You say, well, why doesn't the dragon just devour the woman? It's because the seed of the woman carries the promise from the Garden of Eden, and she's protected by God. Verse five, so she gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations, or back to authority, with a rod of iron. Basically, there isn't much struggle to understand that she gives birth to Jesus Messiah. Since John is quoting Psalm two, verse nine. And the word, the, the word to rule here literally is to shepherd. He shepherds, he shepherds the nations with a rod of iron. And the rod of iron signifies strength, not tyranny. But her child was caught up to his throne. So we have a picture of the ascension of Jesus. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, that is divine provision and protection, in which she is to be nourished for 1,000 260 days. What is that, huh? Well, the Hebrew calendar is broken down into 30-day months. And this re re represents exactly three and one-half years, three times and one-half time. This time period is mentioned seven times in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, uh, for example. And what it represents is the literal time of the public ministry of Jesus, but it's also the figurative time of the public ministry of the church. So in this pure kind of like genius piece of apocalyptic Holy Ghost poetry, John is describing how the Holy Spirit and redemption work across the whole of history. How 
is this for a nativity story. The Apostle John is setting up a tremendous parallel between the nation of Israel, uh, Mary herself, and then the church. And what's intriguing here is this. What was Mary's influence on John as, as, as he prophesies this in, in Ephesus? Did Mary later on in her life see her own role as bringing forth Jesus uh, to a desperately lost world as now an analogy of the church bringing forth Jesus to a desperately lost world? Was she realizing uh, our specialness as the church together in Jesus? Our royalty together in Jesus is a picture of the way that she brought forth Jesus at the nativity. So here's the most important point. I mean, I know you saw this imagery and it's there, but here's the most important point I want to make this morning in bringing to you this very uncharacteristic uh, nativity story. Um, I really did kind of bargain with the Lord. Like, I'm really going to take the church into this description. I felt like God said, you need to do it. So here's the point. Whenever the church is positioned by God to bring forth the Christ to a lost world, especially in a special way, there's a dragon waiting to devour us. Whenever the church is being positioned by God to bring forth the Christ to a lost world, there is a dragon waiting to devour us. These are critical moments in history. Uh, what, what there are there are critical moments in history when the Holy Spirit causes the church to supernaturally surge forward, tactically, strategically, and effectually. These are Cairo seasons, and they usually emerge out of a season of darkness and hiddenness, like we're experiencing right now. And we, we give names to these moments, names like refreshing and revival and, and uh, renewal and reformation. And they're, they're all rewords that tell us that we're tapping into the unction of the Holy Spirit that came upon the church in its birth at Pentecost in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. So we have names for all these movements throughout history. When, when the woman was positioned to give birth and the dragon was positioned to devour. We have names for all these movements that ignited the church from the Montanist revivals in the second century with Tertullian to the charismatic renewal uh, that gave birth to this church in the last century. And I personally believe that we are on the precipice of moving into one of those Kairos moments. And if that's true, and I believe that it is, by the way, Yesterday when I was writing up this message, I, you know, and I thought, I'm going to say that we're going to move into one of, these, one of these moments like we've seen throughout church history. And, I, and, I, and I, I'm going to say I believe that. I had to stop writing and say to the Lord, look, should, do I believe that? Is, is that what you're saying? And I felt strong unction of the Holy Spirit say, you say it because it's going to happen. So if that's true, and I believe that it is, uh, the church is positioning itself to bring forth Jesus in a, in a powerful, I'm not talking about just New Covenant, I'm talking about the church, capital C. The church is positioning itself to give birth. And you know what? A powerful dragon is chomping at the bit. Fast forward with me. We're coming through this terrible pandemic and we just went through an election that some of us feel was robbed. I think of JFK 
in 19... I'm still not convinced JFK was elected uh, and beat Nixon, but, you know, these things happen. Some of us feel it, it wasn't robbed, and some of us are so tired of it all, we just don't give a damn anymore. I mean, that's where the church is at right now. But what I want to point out is that we are at war with a principality that looks to isolate and quarantine the body of Christ from itself, you know. Uh, this doesn't mean I'm against quarantining. You see, you have, to, you have to qualify everything you say today, right? Okay, it's purpose. The purpose of this principality is to isolate the church into generational camps, uh, into racial camps, into political camps, into theological camps, and then it wants to feed us to one another so that the body of Christ devours itself. And that's what's going on. It's a devouring spirit, it's real, and it's looking to disassemble the body of Christ. And we can dance to its fiddle, or we can do something else. All right, so the point here is, because a king is born whose authority is, is more real than any kind of authority in the world, we are privileged and responsible to share in his royal prerogatives, okay? We share in the power and the authority and the government of Jesus Christ as the church, as the body of Christ. And as the church, we cooperate with his second coming and the coming of his kingdom even right now. And we're involved with putting all of his enemies under his feet. This is the reason that there's a dragon standing before the woman who is going to give birth. When we exercise kingdom government, uh, we, do it, we do it in the same manner that Jesus did it. Now, the disciples were constantly confused uh, how, of how, about how Jesus exercised his royal prerogatives. So they constantly were embattled with one another. But here's a crucial notion. A little king's authority works from position but as well as relationship. We have a position in Christ to take authority. That's our royal prerogative. Now, Barry Falkenstein did a masterful job this past spring unpacking our positional authority in the throne of Jesus. And I'm a strong advocate of what I call kingdom authority prayer, basic, basic binding and loosing, that we do that, we take authority. But it's half the game. Remember that we opened this message with Isaiah's prophecy that we love to quote at Christmas time. We love to sing Handel's Messiah. Isaiah tells us the little king comes mighty, the little king comes everlasting, the little king comes with governmental authority that ever increases. But he also comes, the little king comes as counselor. The little king comes as wonderful. The little king comes as father. The little king comes as a prince who ever begets peace. Jesus came as a king, but he also came in humility. And the preponderant reason above all the reasons that he came, are, there are tons of reasons, but the preponderant reason was love. For God so loved the world. So where am I going with all this? How we understand our royalty decides how we exercise our authority. How we understand our royalty decides 
whether the dragon gets to devour us or not. So this week, uh, one of the uh, prophetic voices in the church, uh, a good friend of mine, Brett Young, who rarely does anything like this, uh, came up with a prophecy that he felt was particularly strong, strong anointing of the Spirit. He vetted it through uh, so even some national prophetic voices that he knows, and he vetted it through, through the elders in our prophetic team. And I just sensed that it was God. I want to read it. I'm gonna, I got his permission to do that. And what Brett was saying is this. He says, I hear the Lord saying that the church at large will begin to repent and will be moved by God's holy presence. The church will begin to repent of its own dependence, self-reliance, pride, and repent of compromising its walk with God. Now, one of the preponderant themes in this prophecy that Brett gave is holy, holy, holy. The presence of God is described as a holy presence. I hear God saying, he says, he's going to reveal his holy presence in his people in a way that they've never experienced before. It's not just the presence of God, not just the manifest presence. It's the presence that contains holiness. This will be a sovereign move of God. Men can't and will not make this happen. Only God will place his holiness in his people the way he wants to put his holiness in his people. And I hear the Lord saying that the church will then move in power and authority and his people will be used to evangelize and minister in the word of God like never before. The sound teaching and the sound doctrine will return to the church and those who are surrendered, repentant, and brokenhearted before the Lord will come forth. There will be an awakening to the church, a new thirst and hunger for God's holy presence as never before. But the key is this. God's word must supersede one's own opinion. I hear the Lord saying that once, once what matters to the church will no longer be of importance because God is going to replace it with something that is holy and godly. He's gonna replace it with a holy desire in the hearts of his people to do his will and bring forth his glory, the glory of his, here it is again, holy presence to the earth. And the second key is this, the unity of God's people. So Brett sent that to me this week. I, I even is saying it, I feel like the Holy Spirit is all over it. Unless there is a revival of love, there will be no revival. Unless there's a revival of unity, there will be no revival. God predicates what he wants from the Moravians right through until today. All those Moravian Pentecost things that we uh, tickled ourselves with last year all pointed to this. If we refuse to love, we can become a stopgap and God will give what he wants to do here in terms of his holiness to another generation. So, will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I, I, I wanna bring this before the church uh, I pray, Lord, that, that 
what you prophesied through other prophets over the Lehi Valley, over Bethlehem, over uh, these municipalities as being a place where holiness would emerge, where holiness preaching would emerge. I pray with my brothers and sisters this morning that you give us the grace and, and Lord, the fortitude to do what we need to do to see your, your, your purposes just suffuse this valley in the holy presence of the living God. Help us, Lord. We need your help. We need angelic visitation. We need the visitation of your Holy Spirit in order for us to, to be prepared in our hearts, to, to have our hearts broken for you, to, to, to see actualized what you want to do. And we're asking this across the airwaves this morning. Those that are listening, we just ask this in Jesus' name. Now, there may be somebody here or, or online who, who are, you're watching who, you know, this, this is a pretty supernatural kind of message. It's, we forget how super the supernatural is sometimes. And then John laces us with this thing like Revelation 12. But the truth is this. Jesus came to love you. God loved the world and sent Jesus. And this Christmas may be the first Christmas that you can accept the full love of God that was destined for you through the coming of Jesus as a child and then his death on the cross for you and his resurrection for you. And you can, you can partake in that. You can imbibe it this morning by just praying a prayer with me. And for those of you online, you can pray this with the remembrance of the fact that maybe you prayed this before and it changed your life. But I want you to pray it to change your life if you've never prayed it before, or maybe if you prayed it and it never meant much. But just pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm so sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life. I break my heart before you, Lord. Will you please forgive me? I want to turn now, right now, from anything that I know is wrong. And I thank you that you died for me. I thank you that love set me free. And I thank you that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of your spirit. And I right now receive that gift, come into my life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.